I'm a big believer that experience teaches. My goal with this show is to have guests to share their experience so that they can tell you what it's like, what they did right and what they did wrong. And I'm gonna share the same. Look, I'm not trying to regurgitate stuff you can find on the internet. I'm gonna tell you how it really is and what it's really like to own your own place. This is the National Restaurant Owners Podcast with your host, Kyle and Sarah. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Because without you, it wouldn't be the number one and fastest growing podcast for independent restaurant owners in the country. So thank you for that. And look, usually we have a little chit chat now, but I need to just jump right in because I was really impressed with having Stratus Morfogan back on the show. Um, He was on just over about a year and a half ago. World was a different place, but my man is completely unscripted. If you don't know who he is, he's a restaurateur. He owns Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, which you've probably heard a lot about in the last year or so. Uh, Brooklyn Chop House. And now he's bringing back to life, reimagining uh, his grandfather's restaurant, Papa's Greek Taverna, uh, in the West Village. And it is just another example of his passion for for his upbringing, which is outlined very clearly. And this book has grown to be very close not if it close to me, but like one a book that really speaks to me to be a disruptor. And when I saw the title and he was posting on social media, sort of teasing it, I was like, "Fuck yeah, dude! This is great." But I had no idea until yesterday, recorded the show yesterday, um, how many things we have in common in terms of mindset. He mentioned um, he suffers, suffers, has uh, ADD. I do as well. A lot of us do, but you know he leans into it and explains how it can be a strength, which is amazing. So I really appreciated that. He is always unscripted. He is always talking about looking at things from multiple different angles and the impact that his father had on him is, cannot be diminished. So check it out. This is Stratus Morfogan, author of Be a Disruptor, National Restaurant Owners Podcast, episode 121. Check it out. Without a doubt. When I was running my restaurants, one of the most frustrating things was you're talking to a guest, you know, you're vibing, they're vibing with you, you're vibing with them, they love their experience, you're thanking them, and the phone starts to ring. But you can't get to it, right? You're not going to pull yourself away from the guests. So the phone's ringing, everybody knows it's ringing, but you're locking eyes with the guests, you're doing your, your job, but you need to realize that when you don't answer that phone, you're losing potential customers. There's a crazy statistic that says 42% of restaurant guests are actually going to eat elsewhere if that call is not answered. That's why I'm telling you guys today about Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions most people call in with. Like, do you have parking? What are your hours? Do you have outdoor seating? Plus, in the Pop Menu platform itself, you can actually customize those answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and create customized greetings. What's even better? Pop menu answering. They're not going to call in sick. They're not going to no show. It answers your phone 24-7, 365 days a year. Pop menu answering helps you gain insight into what potential customers are typically calling about, turning every phone call into an opportunity for your business. As a special offer, just for you guys, Pop Menu 
is allowing you to get a hundred bucks off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash owners. So head over there now, get your hundred bucks off your first month, learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash owners and reclaim the power of your phone with pop menu answering. All right, guys, welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. And if you've been listening to the show, watching the show, we had Stratus Morfogan on about a year ago, it was a little over a year. I think it was March 2021. A lot has transpired since then. So I, I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate you taking the time to jump back on. Uh, always, always. Hopefully, it'll be many more in the future. So, look, I uh, picked up a copy of the book, I dove right in. But before we get into that, I got to ask you sort of like an icebreaker question, if you don't mind. Of course. What in your storied history has been your most embarrassing moment with a guest? Um, was it mo most embarrassing for the guest or most embarrassing? For, for you. Me? Most embarrassing for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was uh, at six years old. I was a busboy and I went up to the most discreet gangster of all time, <laughs> Carlo Gambino. And I said to Mr. Gambino, as I was pouring water for him and about five of his cronies, um, <laughs> I, I was pouring water and I said, hi, Mr. Gambino, how's your evening? And, you know, here's a guy that went out of his way to be discreet and have nobody know who he is. And here's a six-year-old busboy uh, basically <laughs> ca calling out the, the most powerful man in the world by name. And the whole table started laughing. And, uh, and he basically said, come here, kid. And he basically put a $20 bill in my pocket and said, hi, is good enough. <laughs> and uh, that, that was my first lesson in discretion. But uh, on the flip side... You know, th there was a time when um, when I had Philippe Chow in 2009, um, an unruly customer actually physically hit one of my waiters. And um, I, I basically um, went up to the table and I said, your money is not good tonight and you have to leave. Okay. And they said, they basically said, tough shit. We're not moving anywhere. <laughs> and they were, so just, just to set the scene, they were sitting in a four top and, with about 200 people around them. And they were like in the middle aisle in front of everybody and everybody was watching this. So as the man got up, he got in my face and I said, um, I, I said, sit down. And, um, and, and he reluctantly sat down. And then I asked the busboy and waiter to come over and we removed the table. And we yes. let them sit there with four chairs in the middle of a dining room, a crowded dining room. So at that nice. point he got back up and he got nose to nose with me. And that's where I met Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen came from behind him and grabbed him and said, you touch him, you touch both of us, and, uh. and it's not going to go well for you. And that's how I met Michael Cohen, because he, he was one of the customers who I didn't know at the time, and he basically stood up for me, and uh, basically the guy was like double my size, and he backed down when, the, when, when it became two against one. Hell yeah, and, uh, dude. So those are, those are part of the funny restaurant <laughs> stories, but you know, I, 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 the word embarrassed really doesn't come up. I own my mistakes, and... You know, there are just a lot of a lot of uh, interesting scenarios. I, I think almost every night I walk into my restaurants. Oh, you get a lot of a lot of colorful characters, let's say, in New York City restaurants. So I'm sure those opportunities present themselves quite a bit. They, they, they do <laughs> on, on, on all levels. So since we like we touched on the beginning, since we last spoke, you've become an author. Right. I mean, the book Be a Disruptor is out now, just got out. I've been I'm about halfway through it, haven't finished it, but. 
tell me about what made you want to write this book. I mean, in the midst of everything you got going on with your restaurants, you're signing leases. Uh, how the hell did you have time to write a book here? And, and, and what made you want to get started on that project? Actually, since we, I, my second book, <laughs> my yeah. first book, Damn Good Dumplings. And uh, that's right. My, and my second book, Be a Disruptor. So I got to tell you, Kyle, for the last 15 years, people have always said to me, you should write a book. Because very few people know about my story um, from the late 80s to the early 90s. I've actually kept it very quiet. And I've never really discussed, um, you know, that part of my career. Uh, not that I'm ashamed of it. I'm actually very proud of it. But I never really discussed it anymore because I've moved on to a different level. But at that time, you know, I, I'd say for the last 15 years, it was a constant thing where I hear you got to write a book. You should write a book. And not just for like, you know, just for your memoir, you should write a business book. You know, you've experienced mm -hmm. harsh failures. You've experienced incredible obstacles. Um, and, and you've always come out ahead. Um, and, and basically, so my book is not just about success. It's about the, the route the route to success, uh, R-O-U-T-E. Mm -hmm. and, and, that, and that route is very important because you, know, you, you gotta embrace failure to accept success. And when people are, are, you know, are taught to be ashamed of failure, these are the people that will never see their true potential when they're yeah. afraid of failure. I, I, I embraced my failures, I fixed my failures, I corrected my failures, I surrounded myself with positive, high energy type partners and ever since then, everything has been going great as I knock on wood, you know, you know, there, there hasn't been any downfall since then. But, you know, I tell young students that I teach a few universities uh, every year. I teach entrepreneurship and, and I tell them, you know, in your 20s, fuck it up, fail, yeah. take high risk, because if you don't do it in your 20s, you know, you're not going to be able to fix it in your 30s, make money in your 40s and retire in your 80s. Because the ones that said you should get a job in your 20s and succeed and retire in your 60s, I believe that was written in 1902 when the average age was 62 years old. Now that the average age is 84, I'm hearing too many stories of people retiring in their 60s and broke in their 90s. Yeah. You know, because people are living a longer life. So I tell students, fuck it up in your 20s, fix it in your 30s, make it, make money in your 40s and retire in your 80s. That should be your plan post-education. That's it. Well, post Post-college. I'm glad you say that because I uh, inadvertently have, have been on that path myself. So, um, you know, as somebody <laughs> who's been a little bit, um, you know, I wound up in the restaurant business a little bit differently. But, yeah, I agree with that, right? I mean, the 20s is your chance to roll the dice. And I think I just saw an article today where they, they sort of gave that advice now. I mean, that message is sort of being preached by, by some of the other generations that, like, hey, this is your time to make those mistakes. And I think particularly in the restaurant business, I mean, cause it's not like a book or even culinary school doesn't, doesn't train you for, for what you're in for. I mean, you, you got to kind of learn by doing. Yeah, well, well, that leads me into my book, my book. I, 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 I'm addicted to documentaries and memoirs of business no. people that I respect. And that's all that attracts my attention with ADHD that I have. If I'm not totally interested in, in the author or the story about business, about success, about how to get to success, but I got to tell you, after reading so many books, it starts to become redundant. Mm. They have the same, the same analytics, the same this, the same that. And I got pretty bored. And that was another reason why I pushed to write my book. Because my book is about the journey of an, our New York City entrepreneur through the mob-infested businesses pre-Giuliani to um, Harvard MBA Wharton uh, partners that were, were CEOs of Fortune 100 companies um, to dealing with the politicians the last two years. 
And, you know, there's never been a business book that's supported by true life stories. And, mm. and that's what my, my business book is about. Be a Disruptor is about, you know, everything I've done, I've never done the status quo. I've always done it my way. Uh, failure is definitely a higher ratio when you, when, when you try to break the mold or create a new mousetrap. And, and with that said, you know, you, you have to basically, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I never found a book that, you know, that really came at, at with this approach. I've never seen a business book like that. And that's why Being Disruptor is getting really great reviews because it's a really unconventional way to look at your look at being an entrepreneur, especially in the tough city of New York City. Yeah, I, I tell you this, your book and just your career as I followed you has been it's actually been very it brought me a lot of peace because I grew up with thinking that I was someone's wrong with me. Like, I'm like, why do I, why am I always questioning everything? Why do I, why am I only interested in documentaries? Why do I always constantly need this information? Why am I looking at something and saying, this could be better. Why do we have to do it this way? And I'll get reprimanded for it. Right. Like my parents would be like, just stay the path, do this, do that. You, you mentioned in the book that your dad was actually supportive of you being, you know, somewhat of a disruptor. There's a story about you in school and, and your dad was like, come check him out at the restaurant. And, yeah. and I thought that was a very interesting lesson because it can it can be frustrating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Your dad's influence? Sure. Yeah, my dad my dad was a special man. He um, um, he basically understood what school was, and his dream was for me to go to university. But at a very early age, he knew that I was different. Mm. He knew that um, you know I, I had ADHD and it was very strong, and they didn't know how to diagnose it in, mm. in the seventies. And I'm glad they didn't because I never got medicated for it. And I recommend all parents never to medicate ADHD. You know, let it go because as they become entrepreneurs, as they become business people in the real world, it's an asset that you don't want. You don't want to. You don't want to shut down. Amen. So I, I, in, in school, I used to just look out the window and just you know dream about going back to the Fulton Fish Market or dream about working at my dad's restaurant because it was so much energy and I loved it and I felt like I was king of the castle. And, but when in school, I, 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 you know, I was belittled by the teachers because I wasn't getting good marks. And um, with that said, they, they brought in my mom and dad. I think I was 10 years old. That was like the first of many times. They, every, new, every new school I went to, they would always bring my mom and dad in. They said, we think Stratus needs special needs or it needs you know, more attention that we just can't give him. And my father would look at it and listen. And, and I think most parents would have been like, oh, you know, let, let's get him special yeah. needs. You know, let's get him special teachers. My dad's like, really? Well, this is what I want you guys to do. After I'm listening to this, I don't think you're teaching things that he's interested in. Ah, the teacher's like, what do you mean? You're going to teach us how to teach now? Where did you go to the university? My father's like, I went to the university of hard knocks. You know, I, I just barely graduated high school after a worn, torn uh, Greece that I left when I was 13. Um, you know, I, and, and I did okay. So after that was said and done, my dad said, you know what? I'm going to hold the table at our 200 seat restaurant, Chelsea Chop House in Belarus, Queens. And I want you to see Stratus at 10 years old where he works as a busboy. But don't let that busboy outfit fool you. He's teaching waiters how to serve. He's teaching bussers how to bust. He's teaching bartenders how to hold a glass. He's teaching the managers how to manage and the hosts how to host. Mm. And he's doing this all at 10 years old while the kids that you're comparing him to are sitting home with their hot chocolate, you know, watching cartoons ready for bed. Yeah. There are people that won't even order their meal until Stratus hits, it touches that table and tells them what they should eat for tonight. So I want you to see this firsthand. I want you to then tell me if he has special needs, because I don't believe there's one child in your whole class of 200 that can do what he does on a Friday, Saturday night at my restaurant, at our family restaurant. 
yeah. they did come. You know, I give them credit. They did show up. Oh, and, really? and, and, and they were just scratching their head. They couldn't believe that I was running a whole dining room of 200 seats. And people were calling out my name in the middle of the aisles and the hustle and bustle. And I was basically telling the server, no, don't hold a tray like that. No, get a tray when you serve a drink. Da, da, da. No, going back and forth because that's how I was. And they never saw that side to me. And at the end of the night, they all gave me a hug. And, you know, it was all said and done until I got to middle school. When I got to middle school, it happened again. When I went to high school, it happened again. You know, educators don't understand that no. entrepreneurship is never embraced, never encouraged. And entrepreneurship is never taught in schools at any level. We're the only society where we allow $150,000 in student debt, but we don't have $25,000 for a startup. And these are the problems that we face, mm. and it's going to get worse and worse unless we do something about it. We need to change. We even from from a city school to a to a um, you know a, a state school to Wharton MBAs. We need to teach uh, students how to be entrepreneurs, not the VP and the status quo, living somebody else's dream, because that's what yeah. they teach you to do. They teach you to live someone else's dream and be a part of that team. Well, no thanks. That's yeah. something that didn't appeal to me even when I was six years old or 54 years old. It's something I've been an entrepreneur since six. And it's funny. They used to call me stubborn and hard-headed. And the new term for that is be a disruptor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my father, oddly enough, was an educator. He retired like two years ago. And he, I remember him saying to me, like, well, don't you think anything is a big deal? Like, don't you think that's not a big deal? This C is not a big deal. Being late for this is not a big deal. What What do you think is a big deal? I, said, I just don't think this is that important in the grand scheme of life. There are things to 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 really that are more important, things that I want to do that I think are more important. And I think he's finally starting to realize that. But, you know, you, you make a mention in the book also about a disruptor being born uh, or raised and how it's not really that important. Or maybe it was on one of the podcasts I listened to. Can you talk about when you started to realize like, Hey, I can fix this shit. Like this is, I can, I have a better idea. And, and were you just kind of like, cause that takes balls, right? Particularly in the restaurant business or, or even in, in life to take that leap. When did you realize that, Hey, this is something I, sh I really got to lean into. This is me. Just how I interacted with my teachers. I mean, I think I was 11 years old and we were supposed to do a 2000 word book report on the economy. And I handed in 20 words and I did it. I did it defiantly. I said, yeah. here it is. It's, you know, I, I want this uh, video game. There's a demand for it. Then there's a supply chain and then it hits retail. And then, then the consumer reviews it. If they like it, obviously this is pre-internet, you know, then they tell someone else about it and that becomes basically the economy, you know, it's yeah. a supply chain. It's a product that's in demand. I did it in 20 words and I got in school suspension and, and my dad, here he comes again with my, you know, saving my back. And he said, can I see the other 2000 word reports that the other kids did? And he looked at it and he's like, are you joking me? This kid should get an award for doing it in 20 words where these kids can't even get it in 2000 words. Uh, yeah. He got it in 20 words and you're giving him in school suspension. You know, so I knew at that point I never listened. I always had it in my way. That's why I was called stubborn and hard headed, which today you call disruption. Uh, but yeah. I never did anything status quo. When I hit like 18, 19, I turned to my father's Greek diner with a three-star New York Times chef. And it was probably the only diner in the industry that you needed a reservation on Friday and Saturday night uh, to get all. into a Greek, a Greek diner in Queens. You know, so <laughs> everything I did, uh, it started around six, seven, and never stopped. And it, to this day, I'm opening my Greek restaurant, Papa's Taverna, next month 
It's the first wood-burning Greek restaurant. It's the first time a restaurant will have five flavors of tzatziki from avocado, red pepper, and the classic cucumber. And then it's the first time where we're taking our wine list. Bottles from $80 to $5,000 a bottle. You can order it by the glass and pay for it by the glass. So you can buy a five, you can get a $5,000 bottle of wine and pay about $1,400 a glass. And, and so no one's ever done that before. And it blows me away with today's technology, like Coravan. Yep. The, 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 today's technology, how are we not doing that? You know, how, is, how am I the first to do this? <laughs> and, and, and it just behooves me. But, you know, historically, hospitality has always been late to the tech game across the board. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's for sure. I mean, any other, you mentioned coming up, and, and it's obviously all in the book as well, it's coming up in, in your grandfather's restaurant. As you sit here today, you know, you touched on the wine piece. Obviously, the Brooklyn Dumpling Shop has been so innovative. What other lessons do you remember as you were actually working in the restaurant that you still carry today? You know, I, I used to ask my father at the, at the six to eight-year-old age, and I used to say, well, you know, why am I mopping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms? Well, you know, I, I pulled, actually took the menu and I showed it to him and it said under management of the Morfogan family. I said, aren't I part of the management of the Morfogan family? And my dad's <laughs> like, listen, do you like this business? And I said, yeah, I love this business. I don't even want to go to school. I just want to come here. Yeah. And he goes, well, one day, if you're going to be a boss and it's going to be your restaurant to teach someone how to mop a floor, you're not going to be able to do it out of a book. Uh, mm -hmm. But I want you to do well in school, but you're going to have to do it yourself to teach someone else one day on how to do it. And that starts from cleaning the bathrooms, to peeling shrimp and garlic, to yeah. you know, inventory, basement management. So with all that said, that, those were the lessons that I grew up with. And you know, when I told my dad that I wanted a drum set or a new stereo, he said, great, put another day in at the diner or the restaurant and I you can get that. it. Damn you know, I, 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 I never got anything. My father did, did pretty well. He had 14 restaurants, but he never, I had to pay for everything. I even paid for my dental bill. You know, you know, he made me start doing Hardcore. that at 15 years old because he wanted me to have a he wanted me to have a checkbook um, and, yeah. and he wanted me to understand, Smart. you know, what a bank account was. I, he also set me up with my Charles Schwab account. You know, you know he, he was, you know, he brought me to closings uh, every time he opened a restaurant or did a closing or purchased something. He always brought me along and he always brought me along to the Fulton Fish Market. And I remember one day when my mom said, I'm taking your brother and sister to Disney World. I said, hell no, dad's got the truck this week. I'm going to the Fulton Fish Market because that was my Disney World. And that led into, you know, me wow. meeting a lot of a lot of gangsters that ran that ran the city. And, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years, a couple of those guys were my partners. No, <laughs> Oh, really? Wow. That's I mean, now that's that's storytelling, which I mean, I think I'm not going to give away anything in the book, but that's a, that, that Fulton Fish Market piece is, is great. And I think that another thing that reminds me of as you kind of sit here and touch on these different points from the book and stories is that you've taken these stories and you brought them to life, not only in the book, but you are very active on social and you're very, you are probably one of the more impressive storytellers that I know. Tell me how you like restaurant owners need to do this, right? They need to tell their story. They need to brand themselves. What made you make that leap, really get on here and start telling your own story? And how do you use it to leverage, you know, the, the businesses that you're running? Well, uh, anytime I see an injustice, I I'm not the one that's going to sit back and say, oh, gee, let me just take it on the chin. Mm -hmm. I always like to fight back and give my left hook and hit their chin. Yeah. Because that, that, that's the way I've always been. I've never, never backed down for, you know, uh, any kind of 
conflict. And I got to tell you, I just sharpened my trade with all the shit that went down with COVID yeah. with Comrade Cuomo and Mayor DeLauzio. You know, I, I went on Fox Business and Fox News and, and, um, and even Tucker Carlson. And I, and I, I compared Governor Cuomo, oh, Comrade Cuomo is what I like to call him. Comrade Cuomo and Mayor DeLauzio worse than Bin Laden. And, and when I said that in early 20, late 2020, um, I got a lot of pushback for that. Like, how, how dare you compare yeah. him? And I said, well, really? Wait till you see in the next two years and you come back and you tell me if you agree or don't agree that Cuomo is responsible for about 14 to 16,000 nursing home deaths. Um, shutting down the economy, um, they haven't figured out how to flatten the curve for what the cause and effect is. And the effect of, of closing down an economy, they haven't figured out how to, I like to use their quote, flatten the curve. They haven't figured out how to flatten the curve on suicide, depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, divorce, domestic violence, mental illness, and crime. And when you add all that up, I've been saying this since like May, 2020. I said, guess what? Two years from now, every one of these items is gonna be up hundreds and hundreds of percentiles. And guess what? I'm right. Yeah, all those things are so up. The most biggest medical business right now is telemedicine, which is psychiatry and psychologists and therapists over the phone. <laughs> what we've done to this society, what Cuomo and de Blasio did to this economy, it starts from New York City. When you shut down Wall Street, you know, you're shutting down the world. Yeah. And what Cuomo did to do that and de Blasio right behind him, what these two guys did, they don't have, they don't have the fix for mm -hmm. fixing all the things that are caused by shutting down an economy. And I predicted this two years and every day I see new data on why is drug addiction so high? Why is crime so high? Why is, uh, oh, the best is alcohol sales last year tripled, this year now have tripled since 2019. Wow. Why? Alcoholism, drug addiction. Why is divorce at an all time rate? Now wait till the foreclosures and the courts start to catch up and the foreclosures start. You're going to have suicide and depression and domestic violence and divorce at the highest levels we've ever seen. So you tell me if it was worth it shutting down an economy when every epidemiologist said when, it, when a virus is out, the worst thing you can do is shut people in their apartments or shut people in their homes. Yeah. They have to somehow face it and live with it. Now, if you've got a pre-existing condition, you stay home. But the healthy should be out there and the healthy should, you know what? Stay as safe as you can, but keep your businesses open. Go to work. You know, yeah. what they did will go down as, as probably worse than the Great Depression. And I, I say it now with like full authority. They were worse than Bin Laden, maybe fivefold. Wow. I mean, the ripple effect, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what's happening now. And, and yeah, I, I've, I think that it's when New York City shut down, it was a creepy, eerie place. And now we're dealing with the consequences of that. And, and you know, I, I think your, your voice has been so important because restaurant owners were backs against the wall, didn't know what to do. They're taking these mandated instructions and at the sacrifice of their own business, their own relationships, their own well-being. And I mean, how do you expect them? How, how are we going to expect them to navigate the inflation and all these other circumstances you just described? What's some advice you can give to some of these restaurant owners that are really, truly strapped with cash day to day, struggling to find staff? What, what are they supposed to do? Embrace technology, you know, mm. embrace technology. Every time I walk into a fast service restaurant or uh, even a, like a 7-Eleven style or a bodega style, get rid of your cashiers. 
Yeah. We don't need cashiers the same way we don't need toll booth clerks, the same way we don't need umpires behind home plate. You know, we don't, with technology today, look at tennis. They've embraced technology, and look how great that game is now. When that ball hits the line, you see it hit the line. Yeah. You know, we should have that in baseball. But we're getting back to our industry. When I walk into a restaurant and I see cashiers, I, you know, it just, you know, it, 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 again, it, it's historic. You know, when I jumped up and down in 97 that we should get on this thing called Web 1.0, people laughed at me. They said, nah, just for a location finder. Nah, just for like, you know, uh, basically a business card. That's all you need this thing for. I said, no, you could put a little blog on there. You could actually have interact with your, with your guests and your visitors in real time. You could, you could do online ordering and they all laughed me out. You know, they all laughed and said, that's ridiculous. I say the same thing with the metaverse and um, NFTs. Um, if you don't embrace it now, you're really going to be left probably for the second lifetime opportunity. One was Web.1.0. Second is um, NFT and metaverse 3.0. And, you know, again, hospitality has to embrace technology. We're going very strong on the metaverse. We're launching our first NFT private supper club at Brooklyn Chop House in Times mm. Square in September. It'll be the first of its kind. I know there's a bunch of players saying, oh, they're, that they're developing it. A lot of these guys don't even have a restaurant that's under construction, but they say they have it. But putting that aside, we're very excited about the future when it comes to technology. But if you don't embrace technology, you're going to be left behind. And I say it in my book, and I, I'm saying it again, and I said it 25 years ago, when I predicted two billionaire companies, two billionaire companies, friends of mine, I predicted that they would go bankrupt in 25 years if they didn't take Amazon seriously and use their 180 to 250 stores as same day delivery and pickups yeah. and returns and, and use their infrastructure because Amazon hadn't gotten there yet. They were still doing books at the time. And I said, you know, use your infrastructure of 180 to 250 stores. Use that as your same day delivery, pickups, returns use that as an infrastructure because they haven't gotten there yet and they all left me off the table and guess what they both filed bankruptcy in the last 17 months holy shit well yeah and, I mean, and, but... and, and, and their valuations were 1.8 billion and 1.2 billion respectively gone just fucking gone, gone. because they, they didn't believe in this thing called the web i mean technology it moves forward right it's not going to go backwards that's what i try to tell some of these guys right like it, it's it's here right we're not going to stop using instagram snapchat and uh tiktok communicating with our guests now there's the web web 3.0 there's the nfts at least educate yourself i mean turning a blind eye is going to lead to to bankruptcy i mean that's the history has proven that yeah and you know what it is a lot of people got exposed during covid because when covid hit and their restaurant uh supply chain were done you know i'd always scream diversify get your products in, in supermarkets make sure you have online ordering make sure you have some kind of mail order even if you have uh, fresh items make them frozen and send them with dry ice um, make sure you're very active on social media. So what happened was a lot of, a lot of our industry got exposed during COVID because they had none of that. They had, they didn't have online order and they didn't even have, you know, social media accounts. Yep. You know, they had, they had like an Instagram account, which had like, you know, no photographs, one post, <laughs> uh, and, and, and they just did it just to say they did it. Yeah. No, check the box. You, can't, you just, yeah, you can't just check a box. I, I believe of Instagram people laugh because I handled it myself. I literally talk to customers till I fall asleep. Um, and, and, and again, why would you outsource Instagram account when you have thousands of people a week going to your site and inquiring about your product? Why would you outsource that to like a third world country? You know, when the only person that should be answering your social media, if it's not yourself, 
It should be the same manager that walks the floor and speaks to your customers about your product because it has to be someone extremely knowledgeable. I never understood that. You know, back in the day, Kyle, when you wanted to tell someone about a great restaurant, you'd go to a barbershop, you'd go to a, a family event, you'd go to a barbecue, uh, and you say, hey, I went to a restaurant last night, it was great. You know, that was pre-internet. Now we have so many things, even if a person has 50 followers on Instagram, well, I treat them the same way if they had a million followers or 50 followers. Right. We're, we're, we're not remembering. It's not easy to go tell 50 people about your product. Right, exactly. You know, it's not easy pre-internet. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like a layup, a layup, you know, because guys have oh. 5,000 and 50,000 and 200,000. And, and the ones that have 50 are just as important. Actually somewhat even more important because those 50 are paying attention. You get sums with 6 million people, you know, 99.9% of them are not really engaged in your product anyway. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it's the way we look at it. And unfortunately with COVID, a lot of people got exposed and caught with their pants down. And my buddy who I know, uh, you know well, um, Sean Walchev. Um, the digital hospitality is what he says. I mean, I just think of somebody like your dad or guys that I've, that I kind of came up in the business with, if you had, if they knew that now you would have the opportunity to respond to a guest if by video, if you want to like, Hey, real sorry that that happened last night. I want to let you know, I want to invite you in as my guest next time, please, you know, whatever. Yeah. That, that's uh, well, hospitality uh, and advertising that they, they could never dream of. I mean, that's like the well, Jetsons that- to them, right? That's funny you say that because uh, I, I always I, I could I could I always would love to imagine my dad on Yelp, my dad talking to Yelp customers <laughs> because let, let me tell you how he used to handle uh, controversy. I love uh, it. Uh, he had just opened Atlantis Diner in Rockville Center, and uh, it was his first diner in 1978 because he was always in tablecloth restaurants, but he wanted to bring restaurant quality food to diners where at that time diners were just serving frozen Pollock and calling it halibut. So a lady said to him one day, you know, she said, this is not halibut. Um, I've never had halibut that looked like this. Mm. And my father said, because you're used to the frozen Pollock and they're actually not even giving you halibut. They're serving you crap. Excuse me? You're going to tell me I don't know what my fish is? I've been eating fish for 40, 50 years or whatever she said. And there I was as a waiter at the time. And um, so my father said, one second, you know, and I was like, oh, boy. So he comes out with a 60 pound halibut with both hands, both hands out. And he's holding a whole halibut, 60 pounds. The thing is about four feet long. They're huge. Four to five yeah. feet long. Yeah. So he comes out and he throws it right on top of their table and all their plates fall off the table. All the glasses fall down. And my father says, don't ever question my integrity. This is halibut. And you've never actually experienced the real thing. This is not just halibut. This is Alaskan halibut, the best in the business. Now get the hell out of my diner. And that's, that's how my father is. So I, I just can imagine today if my father was responding to Yelp reviews, I don't know if he'd be very good at it. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what, that's a uh, very Marco Pierre White of him. That's a, that is, that is an epic story. I think it's, you know, look, I, 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 I totally, you know, from those kind of stories, I always respect the the owner who stands up for his place. I remember somebody telling me, like, if you haven't gotten to an argument with your with your first customer, you're not in the restaurant business yet. You haven't you haven't understood what that's all about. And I think standing I, up for your brand is important. I, I, I always believe that the customer is not always right. Mm. You know, again, we don't ask questions. If someone doesn't like anything, we never ask questions. We just replace right? it. Yeah. You know, it's not worth it's not worth me trying to convince them that they're wrong. Right. But the customer is not always right. A customer also can be educated. Yeah, you know, and, and obviously when you, when you be a disruptor, 
And when you change things from the status quo, you're going to be questioned. You're going to be like, hey, this is not what I'm used to. Hey, I've never had it this way in this type of restaurant, diner, or what have you. And, and, you know, they're always going to be questioned. Like, you know, when I created Brooklyn Dumpling Shop and I automated the whole process, um, you know, people said, look at this yuppie asshole stealing jobs. And, And my answer would be, you know, and they actually said in front of like 1,600 people I was speaking at, at a conference in Vegas. And the moderator said, hey, don't use profanity. I said, no, 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 no. Allow it. It's okay. Because he's saying it, but there's a hundred more thinking exactly like him. Mm-hmm. But let me answer it. And I answered it very simply. You know, seven out of 10 restaurants fell within three years. The number one reason, they like to say high rent, undercapitalization. Mm-hmm. But the number real reason is payroll. And this is before COVID that they couldn't meet payroll or their payroll ballooned up to 40% of their sales and they just couldn't make it. Mm. Well, you know what? Um, can you imagine if I could drop the payroll from 32% on the industry average to 15 to 18%? And if I could do that, I don't believe seven out of 10 will fail. I actually believe seven out of 10 won't just survive, but they'll actually thrive. And I said, if we do that, I believe seven out of 10 will reverse into seven out of 10 success stories instead of failures. And he goes, well, what are you smoking? The guy says, I, I read an article where you said that the average is nine to 10 employees and you're doing it with three and a half employees. I said, yes. And for every employee that's lost in hospitality, there are 10 other jobs, non-hospitality that are lost. For every mm. one job, there is 10 jobs that are lost. Wow. Now, if you can reverse seven out of 10 from failures to success, just that math alone, it's not just going to save an entrepreneur or a brand or a chain or a restaurant. It's going to save an industry. If we can actually embrace technology and bring the payroll down to half of what the industry norm is, we're actually going to save an industry. Then you tag on the restaurant institutions magazine data for every one hospitality job, 10 non-hospitality jobs are lost. You add that in there? Whoa. I mean, you're talking about saving hundreds of jobs by doing it with this model. And now you had COVID where, where, where restaurants can't even find staff. Yeah. You know, it's wonderful to see my franchisees. We're opening a dumpling shop every three weeks. We have over 100 contracts wow. in play. And, and you know what? It's wonderful to see that they have no issues hiring because they really need about three staffers per shift to basically run the restaurant. So they're hiring like six, seven people for the entire restaurant where the industry norm would have been 12 to 16. And they're having no issues at all. One is the employees love the idea of working with an automat. It's something new to them. So it's exciting and novel. But the other thing is you don't need to hire that many people to execute a Brooklyn dumpling shop. That's, I mean, that's always interesting because it's exactly right. Like restaurateurs are saying my payroll is too high, but I can't cut it. Right. Like I need all these people and it's, yeah. Right. And they're stuck in this mindset and it's this constant thing. And it's, we touched on it before with the technology is when you go to these guys and say, hey, this isn't working, you need to do X, Y, and Z, they're like, well, I can't do that. Well, then. Yeah, they're, they're out of there. So I just, you know, I recently passed on a very lucrative consulting deal for a Montreal company that has 30 restaurants, bakery restaurants, and they want to come to the States and they want to put me on the board and they want me to consult and they want me to help them and show them how to do it. The first time I went to the store, they had seven, seven, eight cashiers. I said, Billy, who is the owner, I said, you got to get rid of this. This has yeah. to stop right away. If you don't want to do the automat, it's fine. You know, you got to at least allow customers, you know, never, never even mind self-ordering kiosks. 
That's already going by the way of the fax machine and the A track. Mm. We're talking about that the consumer has already done the work for you. They bought their smartphone. Their smartphone is a mini POS system. You know, with a QR code, all they need is a QR code or a website where they can order, pick the time that they want to pick it up. And now you're giving the, the consumer all the power of their ordering with the palm of their hand. Why the hell do I need to buy POS systems or a self-ordering kiosk? Our original Brooklyn dumpling shops had four per store. Now we have one just for the 35 and over crowd. Mm. But that 13 to 30 year old crowd, they want to order off their phone. They want oh, yeah. to control the whole ordering process through their phone. Why stop them? Let them do it. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I, I feel bad for these hardware companies because at the end of the day, when you have a $10,000 self-ordering kiosk and then your competition is 10 cents, repeat, your competition is 10 cents. That's a really hard economic uh, windfall. <laughs> that's really hard to overcome economically. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, what that means. You get a QR code for 50 bucks and make a Xerox copy for 10 cents. And that Xerox copy of that QR code could do the same thing as that self-ordering kiosk or the POS system. So even like McDonald's that's so excited about launching all these self-ordering kiosks, yeah. that's, that's already going by the way of the fax machine. Yeah, it's, it's becoming obsolete because people want to order off their phone. Don't stop them. Is it so in your bakery, uh, the bakery guys, are they concerned like they're going to lose hospitality or what were they stuck on no, keeping those cashiers? No, they're just they're, they're afraid to leave their comfort zone. Mm. So I passed on the opportunity because I knew what I was dealing with. I was dealing with, you know, guys that are 45, 50 years old, but they act like they're 80 and 90. Like they act like almost my dad's generation. Right, you know, right. my dad never wanted to put a POS system in. He's like, I yeah. got your, I got your mother at the cashier. Why do I need a POS system? It was that mentality. And, and I felt like, wow, you know, and they happened to be Greek as well. So I'm like, wow, you know, because <laughs> he, he said to me, as we're smoking a cigar, he says, Stratus, I'm nervous. I, I don't know how to operate without cashiers in the front. It's like my comfort blanket. And I said, well, mm. if you're not going to follow my instructions and follow my lead, there's no reason to pay me. I'm going to pass on this opportunity. Hmm. And that's unfortunate. The hospitality industry just doesn't embrace technology because it's out of their comfort zone. They're intimidated. Right. They're intimidated by the whole process. They can't get that there's a way to do things, including build relationships and network with people and get to know people on a very personal level digitally. I mean, that, that's just what's happening. I mean, this show's an example of that. Our phones are an example of that. It's uh, certainly going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and where technology lands ultimately. I mean, there's so much out there now, and, and I know so many guys are still hesitant, to your point. But where, where do you really see it? What, what's next, basically? What's next technologically? And what, what, what should guys be looking forward to in the restaurant, you know, looking six months, a year ahead? Uh, NFTs and metaverse. So with Brooklyn Chop House and Times Square, like I said, we'll be the first ones to launch a private NFT supper club. Uh, so pri private NFT members only supper club. So we have three types of tokens, digital tokens that are beautifully done with a famous artist called per Paul Gerben. Um, you could pay at $8,000 one time, $25,000 or $100,000 one time fee. And what I've done is tied up hospitality and NFT tokens. The first token is $8,000, gives you just admission to a private seller where you can basically go in and out by waving your token at the elevator and it takes you down two levels below ground and it's right. gonna be a private club. 
And then the 25,000 allows you X amount of reservations a month with complimentary wine samplers and things like that. And then the $100,000 basically gives you car service to and from the airport, to and from the hotel, catering available at, you know, if you're driving, if you're flying private, which most people are at that, at that number, they can afford a $100,000 membership. I'm sure yeah. they're flying private. We could cater their plane, you know, their plane trips Thanks. as well. So we've, we've looped in hospitality now to NFT, which is really NFT started with just music and art. And, and now all of a sudden we're tying it into hospitality and it's a one-time fee. You can, after a couple of years, you might just be sick of the restaurant. I've been there so many times last year. And then you can go sell it on the blockchain for a profit. But every time they sell it, we get 10%. And, and, and the beauty of it is now you've given them a, basically a commodity, like an asset. Because when you go, like say if you went to Soho House and you paid $5,000 a year, it's just basically you're paying 5,000 a year. Yeah, right. And if you stop going, you got nothing to sell. Yeah, right. I mean, here you got something to sell yeah. on the blockchain. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is the metaverse. We've, we're, we're trademarked, we've trademarked all our, all our brands on the metaverse. The metaverse is really exciting. Like, for example, Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, which averages about 1,000 square feet, where Brooklyn Chop House is 25,000 square feet. At Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, you know, we're actually expanding our stores through the metaverse, where we're basically, you walk in, and you have a complete 3D experience of our store. You can order online, pick up delivery, buy merchandise, uh, learn some information about the automat and what we've done, understand our franchise model, uh, every bit of information around our store. It's like the perfect retail store. I wish I could design uh, in, in the real world, brick and mortar, mm. but you can do it um, virtually uh, on the metaverse. That's and, and that, and then you, we were going to be doing offerings like subscription-based dumplings, sort of like what ta I think Taco Bell did something like that, but they yep. didn't do it right. No. You know, we're, we're, we're going to have fun stuff like that once they come into our stores on the metaverse. And that's, that's going to be really exciting. And that's the future. And like I yelled in 1996 and 97 when I brought the Fulton Fish Market on the internet, is that get, get your plans, get, get your business models focused on the metaverse and, and NFTs, I don't care if you're in fine dining. I don't care if you have a cafeteria. I yeah. don't care if you have a fast food, fast casual, quick service restaurant. There is a model around NFT and metaverse for any type of hospitality business, not just for music and art. You have to wrap it into your hospitality business. And let me tell you something. When you're looking at a demographic that's 16 to 28 years old, and they all have like an average net. Well, they did have an average net worth of 40, 50 million. So maybe it's like <laughs> 10 to 20 million now, but whatever. Like yeah. every, under, every, every industry gets shaken out. Yeah. That, it's a good time to buy. But putting that aside, that's another story. Um, can you imagine creating a community inside your restaurant where every one of these kids comes down to a bar or a restaurant and they all know that everyone there is definitely into crypto because they paid their memberships with crypto. And... Can you imagine, let me tell you, this community doesn't want to be friends with me and you, Kyle, because we have bank accounts. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be friends with us. Right, they right. want to be friends with the crypto community. Can you imagine getting these kids that are probably single, living at mom's house, or just got their first apartment, worth five to $15 million, and you create a community for them to spend money and accept the currency? Yeah. I mean, I mean what, what, yeah. there is no better, yeah. there is no better yeah. demographic. Let, 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 let dad chime in on that one, right? I mean, he, they can wrap his head around what that's all about. I mean, 
Yeah, I think it, it is a tremendous opportunity. And that, that's a whole other separate episode. Because I, I know still some people my age are like, I don't get it. Like, do I walk into the virtual restaurant and I eat a virtual burrito? No, dude. Yeah, yeah. Remember, you might have it delivered to your to your yeah. to your uh, doorfront. You might you might order a mail order. You might buy some merchandise. You might buy a book. You might you know you you're interacting with the virtual store that you could not replicate in the real world. But everything is there for you to engage in. You know, learn some fun facts about the automat. You know, learn some fun facts about a dumpling. You know, it's just it's just like walking into like a, a river of information. Yeah. And that's what that's what the metaverse is. And that store will only cost you a couple of grand. If you had to build that store in the real world, it would cost you a million dollars. Oh, yeah, for sure. I got somebody here on 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 LinkedIn who made a comment here. What's the hospitality element in the dumpling shop or automat a cook in the kitchen behind the glass and no no one interact with it's completely valid model, but need to differentiate. What, what do you say to people who say things like that? Yeah, I don't care. You know, let me tell you what it's about. First of all, uh, we do have a greeter in the front. Yeah. Because uh, it's interesting. When we open up a regular store that's not around a university, the greeter plays a vital role. Because people that come in 35 and over, they're like, do I need an MIT degree to get, a, to get something to eat? <laughs> you know, so there's a greeter there to show them the process. Now, when you open up by a university, they put their hand up to the greeter like, I'm good. You know, I already yeah. ordered ahead on oh, my yeah. phone. You know, because you're living there. Their, their, you're living there. Their world is on their phone. Yeah. I got a 14 and a 15 and a 22-year-old daughter. I was they just barely gonna... talk to me. You know, they, they, they just order. They do everything off their phone. So yeah. why not create a restaurant that's, that, that, that basically speaks to them? And that's what Brooklyn Dumpling Shop did. But to answer the rest of your question, yeah, three employees can serve as 600 people in a day. That's a beautiful model. Because you know what? Restaurants don't have to close the way they are seven out of 10 yeah. seven out of 10 restaurants are closing and the number one reason is payroll they can't meet payroll how many 7-elevens do you ever see closed they average one employee overnight shift how many 7-elevens do you see <laughs> that closed because point. 10 big gulps 10 big gulps and they pay their payroll so again <laughs> this person sounds like they're not embracing technology or they're the person that was supporting you know they were probably picketing and saying, why are we shutting down the toll booth perks you know, why are we shutting down toll booths? People are losing their jobs. But now that he's been driving 40 miles an hour straight through to the Midtown Tunnel or the George Washington Bridge without stopping 30 minutes to wait online to give 20 bucks and get $10 back and proceed through the crossing, that same person doesn't want to change a thing because they've already got a taste of what it is to drive 30 miles an hour through the Midtown Tunnel instead yeah. of stopping for 30 minutes. So let me see where those pickets are for the ones that say, oh, we're losing jobs by firing the toll booth workers. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's an amazing example. Yeah, technology is uh, basically undefeated. All right, we're, 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 we're coming to an end here, and I can't end this show without talking about some real estate stuff. I think, for me, you were a shining example of how restaurateurs should be looking at the opportunities, particularly in New York City during that time. You signed the lease for the Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. I believe we even recorded the first episode of this show in Pappas under under construction. Tell me just quickly about those deals, where where you saw the opportunity and 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 what's going on with with those guys now. Um, right in March 2020 when everything got shut down, literally by April 1st, 2020, I would get about 3 to 5 offers a day from reputable landlords turning keys that were 5 million, 10 million, 15 million dollar buildouts, handing me the keys. 
and giving me a, a TIA check, tenant improvement allowance check, yeah. to convert it into Brooklyn Chop House or Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. So I, I, I literally said, no, 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 no. At this point, you know, my wife is wearing a hazmat suit and we're living out east and we're like hiding under the covers because we don't know what this is. But I, I knew very quickly that this thing was uh, blown out of proportion. Mm. And uh, I started feeding healthcare heroes. I fed over 8,400 healthcare heroes in 19 hospitals and three police departments. Um, but then my capitalist hat went on probably in about April, May, 2020, when I met with the Friedland Group, David Friedland. And he said, listen, we've always wanted to do a restaurant with you and you own Philippe Chow. We just got uh, 25,000 foot Buffalo Wild Wings in Times Square returned to us. Uh, the investment was $15 million in 2016. Could you come look at it and see what you think? So I left the east end of Long Island and I went into an empty Times Square. It was Friday, two o'clock, and I was the only one in Times Square. Not even a cop. I was the only one in Times Square on Friday at two o'clock. So here I am saying, am I making a monumental, colossal mistake here of not understanding why these public companies that are worth $2 billion are handing in the keys? And then I'm coming here to take it? Or, am I, or do I believe this will be New York City two, three years from now? And I said, I'm going to bank on the resiliency of New York City. And so I proceeded with the lease. I wrote a very one-sided deal. I said, I need a 20-year lease, 8% rent of my sales. I put a COVID clause in there that said, for any reason, a communist leader like we've had in the past shuts me down where business interruption doesn't cover me. This reverts to an 8% of my sales lease. So if I go from 25 to $30 million a year, which are my projections in Times Square, and I drop down to a million because of some restriction on capacity, hours of operation, what have you, and business interruption, which are the biggest crime is, is insurance companies, which they're gonna get theirs next. Um, say, you know, screw you, uh, we're not covering because we don't cover viruses. Um, that's a whole nother segment because this is not a virus that they should have been covering. This was a lockdown and a shutdown done by one communist leader named Cuomo. Putting that aside, um, uh, the Freelands, I basically wrote them a one-sided deal and I expected them to never call me again. And even before I walked out the door, they said, give me your lawyer's number. Let's just do this deal. And in, in May, 2020, here I am, 25,000 square feet. Buffalo Wild Wings had a $7 million guarantee on the lease. So they had to leave everything there. And out of the $15 million that they invested in that store, wow. I basically kept 14 million of it and then the additional money was given to me by the landlord and, um, and a couple of investors we went to, which was minimal. And uh, basically for less than a million dollars, we opened a 700 seat, 25,000 square foot Brooklyn chop house in the heart Man. of Times Square with a million dollar Jumbotron. We have our own Jumbotron digital, uh, <laughs> which, we can, which the liquor companies are gonna start paying wow. for advertising. Wow. So putting that aside, um, you know, wow. I, I, we did this deal and I got two years rent free and it really worked out because we opened in March, 2020, March, 22, we opened and literally we had free rent all the way through that time. And, uh, again, our guarantee is a hundred grand Buffalo Wild Wings <laughs> guarantee was 7 million. So these were, these are the terms and conditions that I wrote, uh, in, you know, early during the pandemic in April, 2020, and the landlord accepted all the terms without even renegotiating it. And I don't think I would have accepted it if he renegotiated because I gave him every out. I, I, inside, I wasn't doing this deal until I, I knew that my downside was protected uh, with my partner, Robert yeah. Cummings and Dave Thomas. You know, Robert was great. Robert actually put it on and saying, hey, and a million dollar cap on the 8%. 
So if we do 12 million, it's a million dollars, right? It's 8%. Uh-huh. But if we do 20 million, it's one point, it, it's capped at a million dollars. It's not 1.6. Wow. So now that's an do, important piece. Oh yeah. Robert came up with that last minute. It was great. I, I didn't think we would get that. And so if we do 30 million, which is our projections, our rent will be 3% at a million dollars. Amen. Uh, congratulations. So they, that is an so epic, they, epic story. Yeah. So the second part of that, um, Kyle, is I took that little format, that, that little bullet point of offering, and I, I got another offer, 14,000 feet in Greenwich Village, where I'm bringing back my grandfather's brand, Tapas Taverna, and I'm doing that with the chef of Milos and Avra, and um, I did the exact same deal. I, I actually did the exact same bullet point. <laughs> Here it is. I, yeah. I, 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 I signed that deal in September 2020, and it's funny. So my wife really had a hard time with me doing the Times Square deal. And she, you know, she's a very highly educated professional. And I understood it because she's scared. The whole industry's scared. Everyone's mm. scared. You got season 100 restaurant tour chain stores scared. You got Buffalo Wild Wings with 2,000 stores handing back the keys of a yeah. $15 million build out. So I, I got that. So I, I said, you know what? I, I did it. And I said, you're going to see in two years that it was a good move because I, I, I'm, as a disruptor, I don't run away from burning buildings. I run into them. I do that with everything that I do. And, um, and it's funny. So the second time I didn't tell her that I signed the restaurant for the Greek restaurant, 14,000 oh feet. So one day I walked into the kitchen and she's holding the newspaper. And, and, I, and I said, and she's going like this, almost like Bugsy Siegel in the movie, reminds me of that. <laughs> and I said, well, what's up? And she goes, she turns it around and says, what pandemic? More Fogan signs 14,000 feet in Greenwich Village. Oh, wow. And I, said, I, I said, I didn't expect that to come out so soon. I was, I was going to tell you about it. I, I was going to tell you about it. But, you know, so again, you know, I, I'm, I've always done that. And sometimes I've failed. Sometimes yeah. I just didn't read it right. But I, I've always been one to run into a burning building. And that's what this book is about. The, yeah. book, the book is about running into a burning, burning building. Because yeah. if you don't, that's the true opportunities are created in a downsized market, not in an up market. Up market is t- it's hard to make money in up markets. Yeah. And you, you, you touched on this very early on in the book. It was like saying that you can't be a disruptor unless you really understand the business. Clearly, you've coming up to the business, you understand it, and you seemingly run into these burning buildings over and over again to prove that that things can be different. And I, I admire you for that. And I think it's a real lesson for, I don't care if this is your first restaurant or your hundredth restaurant. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to have got to know you and really grateful for this story because it's, it is such a lesson and it's sometimes so hard for people to like to, to grasp onto, but um, I, I'm really, um, really impressed by what you've done. And, and again, very, very um, happy I got to know you through the show here. No, thanks. And I'm glad that we keep touch and we're always uh, liking and, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're yeah, digital, digital relationships, honest, man. You know, yeah. I, I mean, you might like something. I'll say, what are you thinking about? I might like something. You're like, are you, are you why are you liking that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's actually pretty funny that we have that interaction ever since we met the first time. It's great. And I, um, so everybody can pick up this book on Amazon, right? I mean, that's where it is, or you have, a, yeah, it's, it's, on, it's on, it's on all, all bookstores now okay. and, um, the, and read the reviews. The reviews are great. And, uh, I, I, it's, you know, it's, it's it really, I'm really excited that people, the reaction to people is they can't put it down and that's no. the best compliment you can get. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I actually started reading it here, but we're going, uh, we're actually going out east this weekend. I'm like, this is my beach treat. I'm gonna wrap this up this weekend. So I'm yeah, really looking forward to that. I, um, and the audio book, the audio book comes out on Wednesday. Oh, uh, do you read the audio book or you have somebody else read it? 
you know, somebody else did it. I actually wanted yeah. to. I, I didn't even know that Simon and Schuster and Skyhorse were doing an audiobook. They never yeah. asked me, but I really would have liked uh, the Matthew McConaughey one is great. I, w- I really would have loved to to do the uh, audio on my book, but they they, <laughs> they chose an actor. You know what? People just a lot of people just don't read anymore. They want to just listen to it while they're on a long drive, and I, yeah. and I love that too. I love it too. So it's on it's on Kindle audio and hardcover. That's awesome. I'll tell you, I had one last thing. As like an ADD guy myself, somebody had given me a trick to like, when you find a book that you really like, get the audio book and the, the traditional book and then listen and read at the same time to really soak it in. I'm like, done. So that's, that's, you just that's gave me another little That's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, Stratus, awesome. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations on the success of the book, on crushing New York City real estate, and uh, obviously the much more success coming for Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Kyle. Of course. Okay. All right. That's it. We're- All right, guys. That's a wrap on episode 121. Uh, shout out to my man, Stratus Morfogan. And look, pick up the book. Pick up the book. Hopefully, this made you want to do that. It'll be linked in the show notes where you can pick up a copy. And if you're in New York, or keep an eye out for the Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. They are exploding across the United States. Super cool concept. And, you know, this is the way you guys got to be thinking, right? Technology. It's here. It's not going backwards. Utilize it in your business. Take a lesson from Stratus and be a fucking disruptor. <laughs> See you guys out there.